Let us please turn in our Bibles today to the book of Hebrews, and we are now continuing on today here in Hebrews chapter 6. And so, beloved, since we know this is God's inspired and inerrant and infallible and perfect word, let's stand for the reading of it, giving us a little context in the first six verses, and then we'll jump to verse 9. Hear now the word of the Lord, beloved. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And verse 9, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much that your word speaks to us even as it spoke to that first generation of Hebrew believers so long ago. Use it now mightily to speak to each one of us to show us what, how we need to live as your people and to be comforted by it as well. Now we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us from this passage today. Please bless the meditations of my heart and the attempt I make to preach your word by your spirit. We pray for that in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you all. Please be seated. Chapter six begins by admonishing Christians to really grow and to mature in the Christian faith. Look again at verse one. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ let us press on to maturity. We've covered that a lot, I know, but I don't think we'll ever not need to be reminded also to press on to be people who are pressing on to maturity. And then as I showed you all last week, the apostle commended the, the church, the Hebrew believers, for their works of benevolence in ministering to the saints. He said they were doing this well. And we read that in verse 10. Look again at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Showing love to our fellow brothers and sisters. When it says saints there, that's what it's talking about. Just our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and it doesn't have to be just those within the confines of these four walls, okay? It can be those outside, 
uh, that are part of the body of Christ, as we heard of some of those just today, didn't we? Part of the body of Christ. And so showing love to our fellow brothers and sisters in, in the faith and doing works of benevolence and charity are indeed important and commendable, my friends. But now, what I showed you all last week is we must remember that we cannot, that cannot be the only mission of the church. And if that becomes the only mission of the church, then they're in the same spot these Hebrew believers were in. Okay? To be a healthy church, a church must have both acts of love, but then also sound teaching and preaching of the word of God. The learning of the truths of God, you know? The Hebrew church needed to be equally concerned about embracing the teachings of the apostles who administered to them so faithfully and taught them the gospel and all the things that we have here in the New Testament. You see, this was where the church in Jerusalem had fallen short. And that's why the apostle is addressing it. We know that the Hebrew Christians, that this book of Hebrews was written to here, they didn't have New Testament Bibles like we do. They didn't have full Bibles whatsoever. That just wasn't possible in those days. Gutenberg hadn't invented the printing press yet, right? But my friends, they had the apostles who God anointed and empowered to speak and preach and teach his words. They had the direct ministry of the apostles who gave us the New Testament. They had had Jesus walking among them. These are Hebrew believers, right? They had had Jesus walking among them until he was crucified on the cross. But then they had the apostles who gave, the, who gave us the New Testament. They had Peter himself. They had James himself, Matthew himself, and all the other disciples who were the disciples that Jesus commissioned to speak his word. Remember, Jesus promised that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the authors of the Old Testament would also inspire them to speak God's word. I just show you this in John 16. Look, but when he, the spirit of truth, talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus is talking to his disciples on the eve of his departing from this world. He'll be crucified the next day. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and he will disclose it to you. See, that's why the word the new testament has the authority of christ himself he commissioned those disciples to speak his word do you see that and jesus also gave the apostles the authority to act and speak in his name remember what he said in matthew 16 take a look there i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and then remember what Jesus said to his disciples as he was about to ascend up to heaven in Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It is for this reason, beloved, that all the apostles who gave us the New Testament continue to be witnesses to us today. Because Jesus said, I will make you my witnesses to the remotest parts of the world. I think we're in one of those remotest parts of the world today. So these men had been and were the teachers, and they had, and the, the Hebrew believers had every opportunity to grow in maturity. I would love to have sat at the feet of Peter and not just read his book, but to have sat at the feet and heard him preaching, right? Or James or John, the apostle John. All of them ministered there to the Jews. And they also ministered outside, but they ministered so much to the Jews. They had every opportunity to have the words of righteousness, the gospel, and also what we would call solid food. But they had been dull in hearing. Remember, we've covered those sections. And they had remained children in their understanding, you see. So this is why they needed to be reprimanded, what he's doing. Leave the elementary teachings about Christ and press on to maturity. We're all to press on to maturity, beloved. Listen, we can say that the apostle here that's writing Hebrews is admonishing the Christians there to perfection. And he's admonishing us to perfection, to settle for nothing less than perfection. Now listen, when I say perfection, I don't mean perfectionism. Okay, I do not mean to suggest the idea that in this life we can ever get, literally get to a point where we can say, I'm beyond sinning, I'm perfect now. You will never be beyond sinning, my friends. We will never get to a point where we can say, I have a perfect knowledge of the things of God. I know it all, I'm perfect. You will never be perfect. And if you don't believe me, just ask your spouse. Remember, my friends, we heard John the Apostle say in John 1.8, he said this. I don't have it there for you. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's speaking to all of us. We all have sin. We will never reach a point of perfection. So that's not what I mean when I say we ought to settle for nothing less than perfection. But rather, what I mean is that we ought to strive for and we ought to desire to be perfect before the Lord. We should desire that, my friends. Peter admonished us similar. He said, be ye holy, for God is holy. You see, so this is what we desire. This is what we strive to do. We strive to be holy. Will we ever be as holy as God? Never. But we strive to be holy, beloved. If we are striving to perfection in our love for God and in our knowledge of the things that God has revealed to us in his holy word, then this is a great evidence of a true faith. This is what we will do. If we have a true faith, we will strive for that perfection. No one can be a Christian who is satisfied to just or just content to remain in sin or 
who would not desire and hope to be made holy as God is holy. And every time we sin, we confess that sin, we, repent, we seek to repent of it, and, and we pray, Lord, help me now to walk in your ways. Okay? This is what God's people do. So I think this is what the apostle is saying in chapter, in verse 1, where he calls them to strive for maturity, press on to maturity. And now this is what he's saying in the scripture we're going to cover today, which is in verse 11 and 12. The same idea. Look at it now. And, if, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. You hear him saying the same thing, basically, there? You all hear me quote, from Albert Barnes a lot. Albert Barnes was a Presbyterian minister and theologian in around the 1850s, even before the Civil War, okay? It's a long time ago. And in his commentary in Hebrews, he said this. I want you to look at that quote. I really thought this is a very good quote. He said, we should aim at perfection in order to make great attainments. And he's coming from 6.1, okay? No man makes any great advance in anything who does not set his standard high. Men usually accomplish about what they expect to accomplish. If a man expects to be a quack physician, he becomes such. If he is satisfied to be a fourth-rate lawyer, he becomes such. If he is willing to be an indifferent mechanic, he advances no higher. If he has no intention or expectation of being a first-rate farmer, he will never become one. If he sincerely aims, however, to excel, he usually accomplishes his object, and it is so in religion. If a man does not intend to be an eminent Christian, he may be certain he never will be. Being an eminent Christian is not produced by chance or more than any more than fine fruit is, or than a good harvest is. One of the principal reasons why Jonathan Edwards became so eminent a Christian was that in early life, he adopted the following resolution to which he appears always to have adhered, that, here's what Jonathan Edwards said, on the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world, at any one time, who was properly a complete Christian in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, I resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. Isn't that an amazing way of approaching life? And the Christian faith, isn't that the way we all ought to approach the Christian faith, our walk with God, that seriously? Well, it was a great blessing to me. I hope it is to you too, my friends. We ought, we ought, this shows us how we ought to approach the Christian life. Not lazily, 
not haphazardly. Well, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, something else will happen. Well, guess what? Something else will happen. But my friends, we should not ever be that way. And the reason we should do this is because if we are maturing in the things of God and striving for perfection in our knowledge of God and these things, the word of God, then listen, we will never fall prey to the false doctrines and the false teachings that are in the world. Should we expect false teachers in the world? The scriptures told us to, didn't it? It said in the last days, false teachers are going to rise up and there's going to be around every corner, everywhere you look, there's going to be false teachers. But beloved, we will not fall prey to them. And listen, we will never fall from Christ or renounce our faith in Christ. We will never. This was what the apostle is trying to keep the Hebrews from doing. And remember, it's because some of them had already done that and some of them were returning to Judaism, contemplating it. That's what verses six, uh, four through six talked about there. And in verse six, he said, uh, in verse four, he said, and in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, these people look like they were uh, they were just like us, believers, at one time, and then have fallen away. Look how serious. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And, beloved, this was because they had become dull in hearing and learning the word of God. Remember, the apostle had said to them up in chapter 5, and verse uh, 12, he said this, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for uh, the mature who become, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then verse 1, let us press on to maturity. Now, beloved, we know that God is the one who ultimately keeps us in his name. We don't keep ourselves. We know that that is the case. But our receiving and our learning and maturing in the truths that God has given to us by the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament is God's way, his means. It's a means of grace to us so that we stay his people, to keep us from falling away from him. It's a means of grace. The, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, but the word of God is the means of grace that is so important. And that's why he gives us the word and the sacrament. And you know what else he gives us? He gives us fellowship with one another. He gives us the, the encouragement of one another, you know? That's why he gives us the church, so that we strengthen one another as we come together, you know, and worship God. And we're going to be the people of God, but we need the encouragement of each other. Y'all remember in uh, many times we've sang the hymn, we are God's people, right? We are God's people, uh, the chosen of the Lord. And in that hymn, we sing these words here. We die alone, 
if we're all by ourselves, it says, we die alone, for on its own each member loses fire, yet joined in one the flame burns on to give warmth and light to inspire. We've sang that word that we've sang those words over and over, haven't we? Because we love that hymn. And you all know what happens when you have a, a coal, when you're sitting around the campfire and, and a log rolls off or a coal falls out of the fire. Well, we know what happens. It goes out, right? It goes out much quicker than all those that are together. That's what we are. We're a bunch of burning coals that are strengthening one another. You see? Well, beloved, now here in verse 11 and 12, I think the apostle is continuing again his admonition to them to press on to maturity. Let's look at verse 11. And he said, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. He begins here, we earnestly desire. Now, who's he talking about? I think he's talking about himself along with Peter and James and Matthew and John and all the other apostles here. He said, we earnestly desire. And this word for desire here means to long for. We covet this. It's that, it's that powerful of a word. We covet that you would do this, that you would show the same diligence. Their earnest longing here was that the Hebrew Christians would be diligent to improve and expand their knowledge of the Word of God, the things of God, and to give it equal priority to that which they had given to their works of benevolence. He said, you did so good in their works of benevolence. Give it equal priority. And notice he said, we wish that every member, look at, look at your text there, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you, that's how he puts it, each one of you, each one of you would do this, that each member would manifest or exhibit in full view of all to see the diligence of their faith. In other words, it's not just for the preacher to do this, to be diligent in his faith. It's not just for the elders. It's not just for the deacons. It's for every one of you who are precious in God's sight and he has saved and loved unto everlasting life. Now, I think it might have been that the apostle may have heard or at least suspected that some of these believers here in the church might have not wanted their, to shine their light so others could see in fear of persecution. Persecution was very real to them. Maybe they were a little bit fearful for, all, for, for a commitment to the doctrines of Christianity to really be that important to them for fear of persecution. But my friends, this does not fit with the wonderful, generous spirit of the gospel. You know, the man who is afraid to let his light shine before men and to allow his attachment to God to be seen by people, by the world, by unbelievers, that man is not far from backsliding and even denying Christ. 
Remember Jesus told the Jews this when he preached to them. Remember when he was preaching, he was preaching mostly to the Jews because <laughs> he was there in Jerusalem or in Judea. And look what he, he said in verse 33 in Matthew 10. Look, but whoever, it's on your sermon helps there. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Well, he was saying that first to the Jews. Don't deny me before all your, all your peers. Look what he said in, in Mark 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then in Luke 9, Luke records it this way, and the Son of Man must suffer Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And remember what Jesus said in John 10, 20, in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So, beloved, this is perhaps why he said we earnestly desire that each one of you have the same diligence. And then he says in verse 11, Go ahead, look now at verse 11 again. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope. He wants them to realize the full assurance. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of faith. Assurance of hope. The word translated full assurance means firm persuasion. Okay, And it refers to a state of mind where there is the fullest conviction, where you, have, you are so convicted that this is the case and there is no doubt. And it was so that they would have the fullest conviction and no doubt, and here's the object of that, of the hope that they had. And they would have it until the end. He wanted them to be diligent, beloved, to mature in their understanding so that they would have the assurance of their hope of eternal life. Every preacher, I think, wants his, those that he's preaching to to grow in their assurance that they are the Lord's. And oftentimes I remind people, this is who you are. You are a child of God. God has done a work, and you are his. And, and it's hard for us as human beings. We tend to be kind of slow to really embrace that and remember that, hey, I'm a child of God because of what God has done, because of what Jesus did for me on the cross, you see? He wants them to have the full assurance of their hope of eternal life. Beloved, earlier we read from the Heidelberg Catechism something that spoke about assurance. 
take a look at your uh, sermon helps. And um, you know how I like to read the question, and you guys read this part of the answer. And remember uh, to the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Would you read that with me? Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So who gives us assurance of eternal life? The Holy Spirit. That's what you said there, right? The Holy Spirit assures me, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. Okay? And then he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to obey him. But that assurance is important, isn't it? Would you ever want to live where, in a world that you couldn't have assurance? I have that conviction, you see? So, beloved, that is helpful for us. Our, our Westminster Catechism is helpful, too. Look at this question 32. What benefits do they that are effectually called? That means the Spirit of God has come into your heart and done a work. Okay? It's effectual. In other words, it, it didn't have any choice but to take effect. So what benefits do they that are effectually called <clears throat> partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. And then, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. You notice the first thing it mentions is assurance. I know God loves me. It comes from our justification, adoption, and sanctification. We have assurance of our salvation as a result of these things, my friends. Sanctification, think about it. We have justification and adoption and sanctification. Of those three, which can you see in some regard? You can't really see your justification. That's all by faith. Your adoption, you've been adopted, okay? Talking about adoption with your little ones here. That adoption has taken place, but you can't really see it. But how about sanctification? Can you see a work of God helping you to want to be God's, to, to love God more, to turn from sin more, sanctification, changing you, making you different. The Apostle John was able to say this in 1 John, look, 1 John 2, 23, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Well, you know what? If we're keeping his commandments, that's a result of sanctification, isn't it? You are not going to be interested at all in keeping God's commandments unless the Spirit of God has put a burden in your heart that says, I want to honor God. I want to 
I want my character to be like his, and the commandments show me how to do that. If we're keeping God's commandments, my friends, then our assurance of our salvation grows. Because we'd say, I wouldn't be doing that if, if it wasn't the case, that I'm saved. Paul said in 2 Timothy, look, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He knew, Paul knew he had assurance of his salvation, didn't he? Thomas Watson, that book that you hear the, the, some of us men get together over there at Artifacts and study, uh, we're in the section on assurance of salvation. And he said this, sanctification is the seed, assurance is the flower which grows out of it. Sanctification, God doing a work in us, is the seed, and assurance is the flower that grows out of it. Assurance is a consequence of sanctification, right? Assurance comes as a result of sanctification, right? Assurance of our salvation is not, is not something... Let me say this, my friends. Assurance of our salvation is not something that every Christian experiences from the moment that God saves them and gives them faith in Christ. You know, it may be a long time till you really have that assurance of that, but you still hold to it by faith. You believe it by faith. As we see, it is related to sanctification uh, assurance is related to sanctification. And unlike justification and adoption, sanctification is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, isn't it? So as we see sanctification taking place in our lives, beloved, assurance of the hope within us grows. Assurance of our salvation grows. Let's remember again what sanctification is. One more catechism question. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So you see, beloved, this is a process that is going to be going on for the rest of our lives. And we, as we see this happening, we grow in assurance. See how it comes? But, beloved, our assurance, now let me say this, our assurance should never rest on, any, on our feelings, on how we feel. It must rest on the Word of God. The Word of God says, He that fears and loves God is loved by God. We trust in that. That's what God's Word says. That's what we trust in. The Word of God says that if we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we have salvation. So we trust in the word of God, and as we do, yes, we have assurance. But listen, it also is the case that our assurance grows as a result of the changed life of sanctification. Again, look with me at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. 
He uses the word hope there. I thought that was interesting. What is hope? Take a look with me at Albert Barnes' definition of hope. He said this, hope is a compound emotion made up of an earnest desire for an object and a corresponding expectation of obtaining it. The hope of heaven is made up of an earnest wish to reach heaven and a corresponding, corresponding expectation of it or reason to believe that it will be ours. The full assurance of that hope exists where there is the highest desire of heaven and such corresponding evidence of personal piety as to leave no doubt that it will be ours. So there's two things going on there about hope, the desire for it and the reason why we can have that expectation, you see? Now, hope is very closely related to faith. You know, as I have the full assurance of my faith, as I have assurance of my faith, my friends, I have a full, a full assurance also of what I hope for. And what is it that we hope for? Well, beloved, what we hope for is for the present, is for the pardon of our sins right now. And then for the future glory that God has promised that there will be for us in heaven. That's what we hope for. Would you say we could boil it down to those two things? Our hope is that our sins are forgiven right now. And for the future glory that God has promised to be given. My hope is that is in what God promises in passages like Hebrews, or excuse me, in Revelation 21. Look at this picture of what heaven's going to be like, my friends. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. Boy, what a picture of heaven to hope for, right? And then look, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Boy, that's what I hope for. I know that's what you hope for, too. Revelation 7 is another wonderful picture of heaven. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These are who clothed in the white robes. Who are they? And from where are they come? And he said to me, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. <clears throat> For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They, sh they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them nor any heat. 
For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life and shall wipe away every tear of their eyes. Do you have assurance of that hope? Are you sure you're going to see those things, beloved? See, I had the privilege last night of reading those scriptures to my sister and, and to my brother-in-law because of the way phones work these days. But he was in a coma. We'll pray that he was comforted by those words too, you know. So, beloved, this is why the Hebrews needed to stop being slow in hearing and they needed to be diligent to press on to maturity in Christ so that they might have the full assurance of their hope and then of their faith, their full assurance of their faith, and then the full assurance of their hope. You see, faith is the ground on which we have hope. And this is the benefit for us of being diligent to grow in the things of the Lord. To not just be satisfied with doing works of benevolence, and saying that's what the church is all about. No, this is how we grow in that assurance of our hope. Now, finally, the apostle says there in verse 11, look, he says, so that we, so to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. Oh, my friends, the apostle longed for them to be diligent to their, in their growing, in their knowledge, and faith in the word of God and the gospel to the end of their lives. You're never going to let up on being diligent to grow in the things of the Lord, my friends. Don't think that that's something for the young people to do. Younger generation. Yeah, when I was younger, I really was diligent to grow in the things of God. No, you guys that are older here, we've got a lot of growing yet to do. All of us do. And so, beloved, he wants them to do this to the end, and he did so, um, so that they would have the hope of heaven fully established. That, that's the end of all of this. Why do we press on? Why are we going to be diligent to know all that God will allow us to know that he has revealed to us? It's so that we can have that assurance of the hope of us being with him in glory. Well, beloved, that is why I think we need to, to do this. I'd like us to press on into verse 12 here, but I guess maybe we better hold it until next time. But for right now, I would just really like to say that what we want to see happening in our lives is for us to do what the apostles telling that first generation who heard these things to do, to press on to perfection in their being diligent students, again, of the things of God and the word of God. And uh, as we're going to learn in verse 12 of imitating those who had gone before them. Verse 12 is a lot of fun. We're going to enjoy that together. So, beloved, may we not be slothful in our Christianity. May we not be dull of hearing, 
May we be diligent in our faith so that we will realize the full assurance of the hope to the end. And beloved, may we adopt the resolution of Jonathan Edwards to be our resolution as well. You see it there, the last thing on your sermon helps. I just pulled that resolution out. May it be that we will say, you want to read it together with me? Let's read it together. On the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, I resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my day. I hope and pray that we'll all adopt Jonathan Edwards' resolution. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that your word calls us to do this. Lord, you don't want us to settle for mediocrity in our walk with you and our knowledge of you. In your word that you have given to us by your prophets and apostles who spoke exactly what you commanded them to speak so that we would have all these wonderful truths. We would have all this wonderful understanding and the final destination of all these wonderful truths and understanding is so that we can have the full assurance of the hope to the end. So Lord, work within us in those ways Work that sanctification in us that helps us to have that full assurance. And we will give you all thanks and praise now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.